Tis the season to shine with H&M. Discover the holiday collection and find fashionable pieces for your wardrobe or for under the tree. Get inspired and dazzle with this year's glam. From tuxedo styles, bow detailed pieces, impressive prints, and more. From unforgettable looks to unforgettable gifts. With fashion finds to home decor, find it all at H&M. Treat your loved ones and yourself this season. Shop in-store or at hm.com. Hey guys, brand new podcast. It's the Burtcast. Burt Kreischer is one of three podcasts. Today out is a brand new Two Bears, One Cave. I think a new Bill Burt's out. And uh, and then I drop this one. I got Jesus Trejo co- coming up this week. He's got a new special coming out on Friday on Showtime. But we are here today to talk about my big white whale. I've been trying to get Patton on the podcast for a long time. I am a huge fan of Patton Oswalt, as you'll find throughout this podcast. I think. Look, I'm not embarrassed of the fact that I'm in love with stand-up comedy and I'm in love with great comics. I love great comedy. And Patton is one of the best. I first saw him at the El Rey. Um, Zach Galifianakis was doing a show there and I went to go see Zach. I'm a fucking, obviously, a huge fan of Zach. This is before they uh, started doing the Comedian's Comedy, one of my favorite documentaries ever. I watched it when you, I think it was just in, it was on Comedy Central and you had to watch chunks of it. Uh, and I went to watch Zach there. Zach was, I think, I want to say Nick Swartzman was wrestling a watermelon. It was like a really weird show. It was a really weird show, but Patton did just straight stand-up. And he told this joke that fucking floored me. I mean, really honestly floored me. It was about his DVR. We talk about the joke a tad bit here. But, um, yeah, I've been trying to get him on the podcast for a long time. I'm a huge fan. He is one of the best writers. Him, Bill Burr, and Doug Stanhope have such an ability to grab phrases and make them so real. Uh, that's I wish I was smarter because then I'd use bigger words to describe this. But they can surmise a situation or a feeling or evoke a, a, a moment in life with phraseology that just blows me away. It's my favorite thing of stand-up. I love it so much. I wish I could do it more. I just, I just don't. I just don't. I mean, look, there's a lot of things I wish I could do better. Patton's just an amazing comic. We talk about him being on the King of Queens a little bit. We talk about, uh, if you don't know when this comes up, and I don't think I was super clear, um, but I'm, I'm feeling a lot of people know Patton lost his wife, I think about a year and a half, two years ago. We talk about that kind of quickly. We talk about mourning. We talk about that very quickly. And then we t- at the very end, I talk about his new wife. I don't think I say that I'm talking about his new wife. I think I just ask him if he watched a movie she was in when we were kids. And so if you are a little confused at the end, that's what I was talking about. Today's podcast is brought to you by Tiege Hanley. I started noticing that I was having problems with my skin the older I got. I felt like I, feel like, uh, I, feel like I would get these little breakouts in my beard and I, and I would notice them and I started to grow my beard higher and higher up my, my face. A lot of people lately, namely Thomas, said I've been looking a lot better. A lot of people have said I've been looking a lot better and I think that's because I'm using Tiege Hanley. Everyone knows I have weird cleaning habits. What I do is I keep this scrub, the Tiege Hanley scrub, out by the outdoor shower. I have shampoo and the Tiege Hanley scrub. I love the scrub. Honestly, I was blown away by the scrub. It makes my face feel so fresh. You're only supposed to use this product twice a week. Oddly enough, I get super excited when I know that I'm, I'm, it's my turn to start using the product. I've been using the Tiege Hanley skincare for the past probably 70 days. I think they gave it to me right when I got into quarantine. 
and I've never felt or looked better in my face. They've got free U.S. shipping standard, no coupon code required. They ship to most other countries as well. And since Tiege Hanley sells directly to the customer, you can get Tiege Hanley's high-quality skincare products for a super affordable price. Because Tiege Hanley is sponsoring the podcast, they're offering my listeners a great deal. Just go to Tiege.com slash BurtCast. That's T-I-E-G-E dot com slash BurtCast to claim your offer and get started for just $25. I'd like to thank all our sponsors today. You'll hear we have a few mid-rolls. So bear with us, everybody. This pays the bills. And in times like these, I'm sure everyone can understand that uh, that that you got to do what you can do to pay the bills around here. Listen, we're trying to make a new podcast studio. I got big guests coming. And this is one of them, man. I'm telling you, I'm so excited about this podcast. I hope I don't geek out too much. I hope you guys don't look at me like, Jesus Christ, Bert, get a fucking room. Um, but I'm just a huge fan of his. He has just had such an amazing career. I didn't even talk about the movie he did, The Fan, which was when he played a uh, a fan. I think it's called the fan. Was it called the fan? It was when he played a New York Giants fan who kind of lost his shit a little bit. It was such a great fucking movie. I talk a little bit about the about the comedians of comedy. Um, we talk a little bit about nerd culture, about how it's like what it's like having daughters. We talk about being a parent a tad bit. It's a great fucking podcast. It's a really great fucking podcast. It's called Big Fan. The biggest fan. It's called Big Fan. Big fan. Big fan. My bad. Um, yeah. It's a great podcast. You're going to love it. We've got to, I'm going to run through the list of ones we've got backlogged. Uh, we're going to put the brakes on doing podcasts for a little bit because I am fucking overwhelmed. <laughs> I've done so many podcasts. We've got one coming out with Joe Buck and Oliver Hudson. We've got one with David Wayne. We've got one this one with Patton. Tomorrow, we're going to re- 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 release Jesus Trejo, who's got a special airing Friday night on Showtime. We've got a podcast with Mark Norman, John Reap, Jay Farrow, Jessica Curson, Matt Iceman. I mean, we're locked and loaded. I'm trying to put out as much content as possible for everyone. I got a big announcement coming up that uh, I, I'm, I'm sure I maybe bring up in a, some of these podcasts, but I haven't really officially announced. And I will let you, the second I do, uh, second I do announce, I'll let you know. Obviously, you know that. He's got a new special streaming right now on Netflix called I Love Everything. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, stand-up comedian, author, actor, I don't think he has a podcast with a brand new special on Netflix called I Love Everything. Ladies and gentlemen, Patton Oswalt. This is Where are you? You in your screening room? Yeah. Where are you? I'm in my man cave. That's a, that, that, by the way, if that doesn't define the two different men right there. <laughs> I have, I am, I am consistently, all the things I love are the things comics love to make fun of men about. Like I am Kevin James from King of Queens. <laughs> well, I mean, this is just, all I have is a, um, is a movie nerds version of a man cave. I just, I'm just watching movies. Like that's what I like doing. I've got my criterion channel and I'm happy. So, and it's no, I get just as wound up, uh, about this shit as people get wound up about sports and wrestling. It's, it's literally, it's the same nerdiness. It's just different fuel. So (laughs) I tried to write a, uh, I can't judge people on like what they're nerdy about because I have the exact same energy. I I tried to write a joke about, uh, the last dance, the Jordan documentary being game of Thrones for sports. <laughs> I, 
but Game of Thrones was such a, I mean, you were one of the guys that I remember what held like Game of Thrones nights. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes, I did. And by the way, um, sports doc, I don't really, I don't watch sports as it happens, but sports documentaries, I love, I've watched every 30 for 30 that, that Muhammad Ali documentary on HBO, any sports documentary. I, I watched all of them. Adam Carolla's racing documentaries on Netflix. I love that world because the personalities are so goddamn crazy. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Because they have to be. They have to be kind of crazy in order to win. Like they have to believe that they're gods. Do you think it's fascinating that, do you think it's fascinating that in a weird way, our culture now, and, and I say this because when you were growing up, this never would have happened when you were a child, but our, our, gen, our, our cultures now celebrate the same intensity people love sports with as the same intensity they love uh, comic books and, 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 and Star Wars and fantasy and, and movies and literature. Isn't that crazy? Well, but I wonder, is that because this, our culture's gone that way or because in the 70s, sports were where the money was. So it made sense for the people running it to get people feverish about the Super Bowl, the NBA championships because of the money. And then they, they couldn't figure out a way to monetize people being into comic books. And then when the technology caught up and they could make Spider-Man swing around and Wolverine's claws pop out, they went, let's, and they already had the model from decades of making sports fans go crazy. And they, and they, it feels like they put the same model onto superhero films and superhero culture. It's, I, I went to, I'd never, I'm not a big comic book guy. I'm not a big uh, nerd culture guy. It just it wasn't my daughters, oddly enough, are both obsessed. One's obsessed with anime and one is obsessed with comic books. I mean, really? Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. But you know what it is, Patton, is that the same way I don't I don't know your relationship with your father. And but I, but I'm, I'm assuming for some reason, I'm assuming because it's D.C., I think I know it. But. <laughs> Or Virginia, but um, yeah. but it's like the way that maybe fathers didn't embrace us as children when our personality started to shine. I had a I had a great avenue in Nerdist Meltdown or in Meltdown comic books as a comic to lean in and go, hey, my daughters are into some shit. Can you help me? And man, right. and say what you want, and I'm and I, I say what you want about sometimes the snobbery of culture, and there you can see that places. Man, every fucking person I've ever met at a comic book store has been cool as shit to me going, I don't know what I'm looking for. I just need help. Like, and oh. they've been amazing. Umbrella Academy is like our thing. Mm-hmm. My oldest daughter's obsessed with Umbrella Academy, the runaways, like all these great. And it was just cool dudes and chicks at, at comic book stores going, come on, let's go for a walk and walking me around and showing me what they're into. Or it, it, do, if they like this, oh, let, let me lead them over here because I've got eight of the things they love. Yeah, I mean, I also think there's a lot of um, uh, you and I, you know, we grew up in that era where sometimes your your parents would try to force their likes on you. And um, my, my mom and dad, neither of them were into science fiction or any of that. My dad was a big sports guy. My mom, you know, was just didn't care about any of that. So I found what I was supposed to find by myself. So I'm very much about my daughter isn't really into superheroes all that much. And I'm not going to be a jock dad about superheroes with her. But yeah. you're going to watch every Avengers movie. You're going to understand. I showed her the first Star Wars and she was like, it's it's fine. I don't care. So I'm not going to be that guy that wants to make a carbon copy of themselves. It just That's never fun. <laughs> you know? So I don't do that. I just, I 
I let her find her own thing. Yeah, the uh, yeah, I, you know, it's one of the cool things I think's happened is people being allowed to going, hey, I'm into that, and be be it transgendered, uh, homosexual, like you name it. Just yeah. the coolest thing is that people can go, oh, I'm into that, and not feel like they're going to get shamed for it. The dude that used to cut my hair grew up really closeted and really scared in Washington State back in the seventies and eighties, like, and it was rural. Um, farmland. And so he, he was gay, but he, he, you know, kept that quiet and played football and beat up kids that they thought were gay with the other jocks to like protect himself and was a blackout drunk and hated himself. And then he moved down to LA and came out of the closet. Now he's married and he's totally happy, but he has this nephew who goes to his old high school and he's very overprotective of him because his nephew is very openly very defiantly gay, like I'm gay and I don't care who knows it. And so my friend's only reference point is, well, you get your ass kicked if you're gay in high school. So he's really like, is anyone fucking with you in high school? And he said that he went back home for Thanksgiving one year and was asking his nephew, like, hey, is anyone messing with you? Because I know you're entering high school and you're very open about your sexuality. And his nephew was like, it's pretty rough, man. They're not, they don't treat us very well. Nothing's really changed. And my friend got really defensive. He's like, what are they doing? Tell me what they're doing. I'll, I'll talk you through this. He goes, well, our gay, lesbian, and trans club wanted to have their prom uh, the same night as the regular prom. And they're making us wait two weeks to have our prom. And it's just absolute oppression. And my friend had to, had to stop himself from going, go fuck yourself. Are you kidding? That's, wait a minute, you have a prom? Like, it was just... Like those different shifting things was so hilarious that he had to, he was suddenly the, you don't know how hard we had it. It was just hilarious, <laughs> you know? But yeah, and it, the stuff that used to be such a big deal for us growing up, not only is it not a big deal, it's not a deal at all. Like you couldn't even do, like it's weird to do um, TV shows now where I, I've noticed because a lot of the young adult shows that my daughter watches, my daughter's in the fourth grade and they have characters that are gay and lesbian and it's not a plot point. It's not, yeah. that's not a, a story anymore. It's just like some of your friends are gay. Some of them are tra- like, no one gives a shit anymore. It's just not a thing. Would you, would, did, I, I, I have a lot. And I think a lot of people, and I wonder if you fight about this on with you within yourself on stage. Mm-hmm. So many people uh, have ideas of who you are uh, politically. Yeah. Uh, what I know that I, I know that I have that sometimes like lately I, I wrote a joke about, uh, I had a, I had a, dream that I that Kendall Jenner said I could have sex with her if, if I could catch him fucking elephant and I was like and it was just a dream and then my, I rolled over and I woke up and I was gonna tell my wife and she started flirting with me and I was like ah eh, I'm, I'm not into it and then in my head I was like I was just about to fuck an elephant in a dream but then here I don't want to have sex with my wife but then I was like I was like ah you know what let's not share that on stage that might not be like there might be fans that don't get it so I kind of edit myself sometimes what I I this is a multi-layered question, but do you yeah. find that happening when you write is that your fans almost expect things from you that sometimes you can't deliver. Like you go, I don't know what, who you think I am. I am just a dude. And how do you exactly. do it? Well, my thing now that I keep really hammering to people is um, as far as like political correctness goes and this whole woke culture, we have to have two things at the same time. We have to have context Look at the context. Things never, ever, ever lose context. And we also, but we also need evolution. So you can't have, um, there are certain 
and, and I, uh, there's stuff in my first uh, first couple albums that I look back and go, Goo! very freely throwing around the uh, the words retard and one of my favorite patent, one of my favorite jokes, and I and I it's I was just talking to Segura about this literally an hour ago, and it's and I don't know how impolitically correct it was, but I just remember voices. But your DVR joke is one of the greatest fucking jokes. One of the greatest, honestly, Patton. I can tell you where I was when I saw it. And and I was blown away at how seamless you were on stage, how comfortable you were on stage, how everything did seem to come out of the moment. As a professional comedian, I was floored at that joke. It's one of my favorite jokes. But yes, again, you run it through the strainer of today's political correctness, and it may catch some snags. But it's not a mean joke. No, and also, again, keep the context in mind. If you're looking at something, that thing's almost 20 years old. So it, and absolutely you can hold it up and go, dude, and then let, but let the other, before canceling them, let the other person go, oh yeah, I didn't know any better and, and I've evolved. If, yeah. if, if the person then digs in and goes, I apologize for nothing. You know, he's like, it's a freaking <laughs> joke. This, this whole idea of like, no apologies, no regrets. You, that's impossible. You're always going to make fuck ups in your life and you got to just go, oh God, my bad. Yeah. I mean, again, putting luminol on people's Twitter feeds and Instagram feeds, you know, um, if they say something awful two weeks ago, yes, maybe let's look at that. But if you dig up someone's tweet from, you know, 2008, give them a little bit of room to go, you know what? Yeah, I shouldn't have said that. I, I now, and I totally know better and sorry if I, you know, so again, it's going to be a constant balancing act between give the people that weren't woke when they needed to be woke some context, but then, but then also the people that are maybe fighting against the so-called woke people and the so-called PC police, look at what they're asking you and go, Hey, maybe I could evolve. Maybe all they're asking for are, are um, better dick jokes. They're, they're like no one's saying no dick jokes, no gay jokes. They're like, find an even more brilliantly vicious way to do this. I mean, that's what I love is there, there's nothing better for a comedian than having stuff you're not supposed to say. And then you get to find amazing ways around it. You know, yes. so it, the, the two worst things are anyone can say whatever they want. Well, now there's no risk or don't say these things. And everyone just immediately shuts down and no one goes that way. The best thing is that that great sweet spot in the middle. We're like, I know I'm not supposed to say this, so how do we find the middle ground here? And it's perfect. Like that's so much fun. Someone told me one time it was uh, Jim Jeffries has a joke about Oscar Pistorius, and they were saying, "Well, I love this joke because it's just he's just doing a disabled joke, really." But mm -hmm. but but he's tricked us into going. He's outraged at the murder of this woman, and it's I don't remember the joke, but it's you're right. Finding a workaround, it almost is like the real treat in comedy. Yes, I remember. Emo Phillips, oh. who is one of the best joke writers alive. One of the Phillips, best joke writers like, ever. Like on an, another level, you like they should just, and by the way, they should teach his jokes to beginning comedians of don't try this at first. You need to work up to this. This is where you'll get to. He had the best Woody Allen joke I've ever heard, which is, and, and, and imagine it in his voice. Where I'll try to do his voice a little bit where he goes on. Um, Soon ye was nine years old when Woody Allen first met her and he waited till she was 18 to have sex with her. Patience of a saint. <laughs> <laughs> 
Like there's so many levels that they're like the, the, the cluelessness of him saying it that like yeah. just that kind of, Oh, I just love those workarounds. Yeah, I do too. I have. That's what, that's what people should celebrate now is the workaround. Thank you, PC culture, for giving us the ability to do the workaround now. Because then you really get those startling moments. You're going, oh my God, they, wow, you know. And you know what? I would argue comedy has always had that standard to an extent. Yes. Yes. Like, if you did a lazy, just hurt someone's feelings kind of joke, I remember Colin Quinn calling out someone in an article one time going, hey, we get it. You say you're just a dick coke joke comic, but strive for more and then let us call you a dick joke comic. <laughs> God, that's great. Well, that's like, I. It, it always bums me out when like a comedian is in a, I, I just believe that the best audience is always whoever you're performing in front of at that moment. And comedians that I used to tour with that would, that would go, well, we're in Roanoke this week, so you don't really mean these people are all fucking idiots. How about let them maybe rise to the occasion, treat every audience like they're going to surprise you and don't have expectations for them. I mean, there's there's brilliance and, and quirkiness everywhere. Don't just go, oh, we're in Tuscaloosa, so who cares? I'll just give them dick jokes. No, give them your, they deserve the best stuff. Well, that's the thing that uh, that really blew my mind about, and 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 I have to say, this is a, a I, I call them like uh, channel markers in because mm -hmm. we grew up in Florida. So you're always going out to the ocean. You always look for the channel marker mm -hmm. to know that you would be safe and to kind of give you guidance of where things could also go. Comedians of comedy is the greatest. I, I might've watched that a hundred times. I, it was my guilty. It was my warm blanket. Uh, the same way Fletch was when I started college, when I had kids and I wanted to do the road and I didn't, I was barely doing the road, doing some feature work, but I, I was in my apartment. I would open a bottle of wine and I would just start at beginning to end, watch the entire, I want to say it was like a six part. It was, they did it in episodes the way I got it. Yeah. Well, and it was did episodes and Netflix did the, the actual documentary. So the documentary led into the TV show, but it was that idea of, I wanted to show, Hey, do you want to do this? This is what comedy on the road is like. There is work to it. There is, you know, actual just dull labor every day before you get to do the fun stuff. But it was also this great show of that, and and you and Stanhope and I would argue like Tom Barry, David Cross, Tom, Todd Barry, David Cross were the first ones to say I to really work outside the system. Yes, they were the first ones. I was very very much inspired by Todd and David of. But you as well. That that whole tour was worked outside of the system. But yeah, I'll give them credit as well. They were yeah. definitely the ones that you guys were all at the same kind of touchstone where you were like. I don't need to do comedy clubs. I can do this my own way. Yeah, I got to find. I got to go find my audience because it also came out of me. It was partially my fault. I was very lazy. I had gotten on to King of Queens, which was a really funny show and a really successful show. But it was an eight o'clock, um, you know, Monday night kind of family show. It was very funny, but I was starting to get headlining gigs, and it was people coming to see me who knew me from King of Queens, but didn't know the actual stuff that I did. And I was lazy going, yeah, give me the headlining gigs. Room's packed. I don't got to do any work. And then I realized, no, you need to maybe start educating your audience a little bit. It can't just be you show up and there it is. It's got to be, you know, give and take back and forth. So that's when I started developing the comedians of comedy. And I was also very, and I'm sure you've had this too, where I had this circle of friends, Brian and Zach and Maria, that I thought weren't being served by the comedy clubs who I all thought were brilliant and who were really butting their heads 
against the comedy club structure. So I said, let's get them all out of here. Let's go find rock clubs and music clubs, and little indie stuff. And that's, and that really, and then I, you know, it, it, again, I was inspired by what David Cross did. And then it's very, it makes me very feel really good to see other comedians started doing that as well. And, and really good voices started building. And then I think that's kind of what started happening also with podcasts. There are a lot of comedians are going, I need longer to get to where I'm going. Like my, my stuff is not that simple. So I need this format. And so people like you and, and, and Bill Burr and people like that have just really thrived in this environment. I'd like to thank our sponsor, Whoop. Whoop is a fitness wearable that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how your body is recovered, and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from your workouts and the normal stressors in life. It is the best fitness tracker I have ever used. And this month, this May being Mental Health Awareness Month, and the current situation we're in with the quarantine, it could not be more important to monitor through the stress being put on our bodies and how recovered we are on a day-to-day basis as our routines change. What's great is that, whoop, every morning I get a recovery score. It's on your phone. And it's based on your HRV, your resting heart rate, and sleep performance that can be used as an indicator on how to approach your day. It is next level. The Whoop app even has a built-in feature like the Strain Coach, which actually gives you a targeted exertion goal workout optimally for the next level or for the level of intensity that your body is signaling that it can handle. And not having a trainer and not being in a class and not being in a gym this literally is, when you're training at home, it's the perfect feature to use. I use it every single day. If I don't hit my goal, I haven't worked out hard enough. And based on how strenuous your day is, the app even has a sleep coach that actually knows you, lets you know when you should be getting up, when you should be going to bed, and recovery based on the performance goals which you set. For my listeners, Whoop is offering 15% off with the code BERT at checkout. Go to whoop.com, that's W-H-O-O-P, and enter BERT at checkout to save 15% off, sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, optimize your performance with Whoop. If your mailbox is anything like mine, 90% of the time it's a fairly depressing place. Political flyers, utility bills, an unholy amount of coupons. But once a month, I do have a reason to be stoked. And that's because of my box of awesome from Bespoke Post. I got one and I loved it. My favorite thing is this little tiny pocket knife, like a literal pocket knife from the 1920s, something the great Gatsby would use. I used it to open... Uh, boxes this morning. I get so excited to open boxes with this thing. It is so sharp, so cool. I wish I could pull it out more often. Bespoke Post sends guys only the best stuff every month. And no matter what you're into, Box Awesome has you covered from style and grooming goods to barware to cooking tools and outdoor gear. Box of Awesome has carefully built collections for every part of your life. To get started, take the quiz at boxofawesome.com. Your answers will help them pick the right box of awesome for you. They release new boxes every month across a ton of different categories. It's free to sign up, and you can skip months or cancel at any time. Each box costs only 45, 45 bucks and has well over $70 worth of gear inside. Right now, get 20% off your first monthly box when you sign up at boxofawesome.com and enter the code BERT at checkout. That is boxofawesome.com, and the code is BERT for 20% off your first box. You're, that is said so perfectly is that I, I I have a I struggle with writing a joke on Twitter I really do Ugh. but I can but I can tell you the joke because yeah. that's what I do but I, I really have a hard time and even when my joke books are all just one word it's like yeah. you, you know goats and then I'm like oh yeah 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 
Well, then let me ask you this, because my joke books are also one word or like a concept with a couple of sentences. And then I got to go in front of an audience and start working it out. So have you been struggling now that all the clubs are closed? Like I missed the comedy store and the Largo and the improv and the Virgil really, really badly because that's where I went out and worked my stuff out. Yeah, I miss, I, I'm, I'm having a really hard time. Everything I write is one word and I know the way I want it to, but even still, I find myself going into my notes on my phone and then saying it the way I want to say it because yeah. I'm like, don't forget this is how, the like, because I may read uh, what time is it, but I won't know how I intend the joke to be. Uh, That's a good, oh shit, I never thought of that. You're right. The inflection alone can be a new angle to the joke. Yeah, I, I, I'll be honest with you. I, when, I, when, I, when this comes back, the one thing I really, uh, I really feel like I've been lazy with is stage time in LA. I, I'm on the road nonstop. And yeah. one, of the th one of the things I think the comp definite compliments I'll pay you is that watching guys like yourself and, mm -hmm. and many other guys in what you would all call the alternative scene was, mm -hmm. it's kind of how I, I, I realized that it didn't have to be set up punch for me. Right. I had, a, I had a hard time fitting in entirely because I just, like I said, I'd write a word down and I knew what I wanted it to sound like and I just speak it and it wasn't like set up punch. Although I have a very uh, bro comedy body and face, <laughs> I always feel like I would, I would love to try some of my material in, in like places like Largo or, or, or the Virgil or different places to kind mm -hmm. of, to, I did, I did a spot one time. I, I the machine story I tell, I don't know if you've heard it, but about getting involved with the Russian mafia. And I told it one time at Nerdist Meltdown and it was a completely different story because they were like comedy fans ready to listen. And they're like yeah. willing to go with you. And you're like, Oh, this isn't like just a bunch of drunk Europeans. This is, yeah. I don't, I don't need to rush to keep the audience's attention. I can actually take some time and do some stuff. Yeah. I mean that, yeah. that kind of, again, you know, there, there's risks both ways though. The mainstream clubs, I love them because that's where you edit and hone. But the risk in only doing the mainstream clubs is you begin to have that same kind of impersonal rhythm because, like you said, I've got to keep these people's attention. Um, in the alt rooms where you get to write and explore more, but there's a danger there too, and this happened to a lot of comedians in the Largo days, which is the audience is so there for you almost to a fault sometimes that you don't learn how to edit and you think that everything that I, I remember, I forgot who said it. Oh, Mitch Hedberg was on stage at the Largo one night and he was doing a lot of killer jokes and a lot of half form jokes that even he wouldn't say it out loud, but it's like, they're just not there yet. He's working on them, but the crowd was going nuts equally for everything. Yeah. And, and then Mitch kind of stopped and he goes, beware of any comedian who writes for a half an hour and says they have a half an hour of material, <laughs> which was kind of his way of going a killer half an hour set at the Largo is probably about eight to nine minutes of solid material on the road. Like, you know what I mean? Like you're upstream from the gold strike. So maybe, you know, keep it, just keep it in perspective. You know what I'm saying? That's what I think is so great about you and what you do is that you can take something you know, I hope you receive this as much as a compliment as it meant is meant. You can do observational material at times, but it has such your thumbprint on it 
that it doesn't seem as observational material. Your references, when you said, I, I, I just started watching your special this morning. First of all, fucking amazing. Everything, everything about it is everything I love about a fucking special. I hit play and you tell a joke and it started and I'm like, that's what I'm talking about. Yes. That, yeah. is my, that, is my, that is my barometer on whether or not I'm going to like a special is how quickly do we get into this? Yes. But one of, but one of the things I love is, is you talk about the color of the cereal boxes and you call them hospital white. And I go, this is, you're, this is, you're, this is an observational material about growing older and getting cereal, but you such your own fucking thumbprint. Thank you're you. like, and just when you say you're up steam from gold strike, how the fuck, what? <laughs> like, I, look, I just, I read a lot. I watch a lot of movies. I like listening to people, how they talk different areas, different accents. And there are just certain phrases that hop out and they just lay dormant in my head until I need them. Like I trust that something that I hear, I remember Stephen King said he actually doesn't keep a notebook. If, a, if an idea doesn't stay in his head, he knows it's not worth pursuing. That's why he doesn't bother writing things down. That's how trained he is now. And in my, I mean, I still write stuff down, but there's other stuff where I'm like, I trust that when the time comes, that thing will leap forward. And then that's where, like, that's where that came from. I write, I write them down and I, and I think, I write them down in like like uh, there's a uh, there's a com- commercial for uh, Noom. Noom's a weight loss app. Uh huh. And this guy goes, this guy. I mean, it's just it struck me funny because it's the only way to say this respectably. He goes, "I'm a third generation candy maker," and all I could think was all the different ways he said it without the brand, like without them going. It sounds weird when you go, "I work in a chocolate factory." <laughs> You're like, "Hold on, that comes out wrong." Say it again. So, but the third generation candy maker gave it a little bit of, and so I just wrote it down. I go somewhere, third generation candy maker, or just the idea that you're a candy maker at all is, is uh, occupationally. But I always wondered that about you is because you have such great, I mean, you, I, I remember reading, was it werewolves and lollipops? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Werewolves and lollipops. Yeah. I remember reading that and I visualize a scene in my head. All the time, all the time. And, and I don't even know if the, how accurate this is about a kid sitting behind the booth at a movie theater reading his book to himself mm-hmm. and just reading. And I, and I read that and I visualized it so well that I went, God damn it, Patton is in a peril. In 1935, he would have been a, just a novelist living in France. Like, like it's, you're, you're such a great fucking writer. Thanks, man. I mean, thank you. I mean, I, again... Being a great writer sure. comes I'm from- I'm like a legit fucking fan. Like, I, I have everything- <laughs> Oh, my God. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, it comes from- uh, I read a lot, and there are certain- And I read everything. I don't- I'm not like, I'm, I'm going to read science fiction horror. I always get the- You know what's, you know what's a, an amazing way to learn how to write? Read sports writing. Every year, I get the America's Best Sports Writing compilation. Sports writing has some of the best phraseology and some of the best- Like, there are certain words- that pop differently in your head, yeah. you know? Um, I mean, like great comedy words are words like pants or hat. I don't know what it is, but that just, they're, they're, they're stronger and they land harder, you know? So, I mean, you know that it's just an instinctual thing that you learn over the years. So, um, yeah, but you and Burr have such a, you two specifically have such a stop in the back of the club and hit another comic. Sanhope has the same thing. Yeah. Where you go, God damn it, man! It's the, it's the, it's the the, the quickness, 
the quickness of getting to the point with so few of words that are so colorful. Yeah. Well, people like Burr um, have that thing where you'll watch them and then you'll subcon or you'll very quietly, the comedians will repeat back the punchline just to hear what it sounds like coming out of your skull. Just to go, it's almost like, Hey, l- let me play that guitar for a second. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I got it. Like you just want to hear how that feels because. Oh, that's really so talks- fucking exactly what it is. Yeah. And I, I remember like people like him, Brian Regan, uh, Paul F. Tompkins. There are those wordsmiths where when they say something, you just kind of go, let me just say this. Uh, oh shit. That was good. Like you <laughs> feel how good it feels like coming out of your head. Oh, that feels good. Yeah, like, uh, that is that is inspired to that. That is said so perfectly. That is exactly. I've done that. I've done that with Stanhope. I've done oh. that with her. I've done that with you. I've done that with. It's amazing. That is other comics. Just it's like yo, I want to. I want to try that guitar. God damn it! You're so like. Well, Stanhope especially is so aware of it. Like there are moments. There are certain punchlines of his where you all would hear him smacking his lips as he says it. He's so happy that he's about to say this phrase like, oh, here comes the really juicy bite of steak. Here we go. Like there, there's actually um, a moment like that. And, and, I, and I was very, very proud of myself. This is a little bit of a brag. In the new special, I have a phrase. Um, you don't want some ropey fitness orc climbing all over you. I use the phrase ropey fitness orc. Describe those guys that work out too much where it's like you're too healthy and now it's not attractive anymore. Like now you just look creepy. And um, that was one of my stand home moments from like, I cannot wait to say it. When I, when that phrase came to me and then I did it one night at the improv and Dana Gould came up to me. He was like, he just went ropey fitness orc. Like he was so happy at those three words together. Dana Gould's another one of those guys that just has those perfect lip smacking little like, Oh, it's right there. Dana Gould. That. It's it's funny, man. There you get, I think we can all appreciate the like the Dana Goulds when I love when he gets to a point where he does something and then has to explain why he did that to the audience and why its comedic value was underappreciated. And you yes. just and you're just sitting in the back going, You 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 just broke down something I do on stage and I didn't know why I did it. I just knew it got laughs, and then you broke down the theory of it. Right. And and you're one hundred percent correct. Everything you just said you absolutely nailed and it's indisputable what you just said. You're right. And, and like, that'll be in my head from now on. What was it when you, when you first started, when you first started, was that when the split with the alt and kind of bro, not I say bro comics, that's what they are. We are now more, but like the alt and the more uh, campy scene, the more like clubby scene. Was that when that was? No, when I started, it was weird. I started and I'm actually fortunate that I did. I started in 1988. I went, my first time on stage was the same night as Chappelle's first time on stage. It was uh, July 18th, 1988. He was 14 years old. And was, was that in D.C.? At Garvin's Comedy Club in Washington, D.C. And he was 14 years old and went on stage and it looked, it felt like he'd been doing it for 30 years. He just was, bam, it was just amazing. Um, but I started just as the boom was starting to end. So there was still this ghostly feeling of, there's a million comedy clubs and even a mediocre comedian can make 50 to hundred grand a year. As, as Andy Kinley used to say, if you could say good evening, ladies and gentlemen, for a time in the early eighties, you could make a hundred grand a year. Like they just needed warm bodies. They didn't give a shit. So I saw people that had gotten kind of lazy and leaned on the same 45 minutes and w- overspent 
Because in their minds, like, I'll be making, you know, five grand a week forever. And then suddenly every club is gone. And I'm watching older comedians getting houses repossessed and cars towed. So I learned very early, A, every day is a rainy day in this business. Just whatever you make, pretend like you've made half of that and put the other half away. Ooh, and then I, I also saw the frustration of starting comedy when so much was already um, – taken as a given like well when you do comedy you have to do this you have to do this you have to dress this way you got to talk this way and then when it all collapsed and I saw all these people just kind of set adrift and then I moved to San Francisco in 92 that was when I saw the beginnings of the so-called alt scene which were comedians that just wanted to do it even if they had to have day jobs like they just wanted to be on stage doing their own thing and that kind of built that scene up from there and and weirdly enough even though if you're calling it like the bro comics or the club comics, but those guys, the so-called bro comics still came out of the same motivation of, I want to do this no matter what. So to me, like the Largo scene or, um, uh, uh, you, you know, the, the comedians of comedy to me is no different than Skankfest or anything else, which is let's build our own thing yeah. and find our own crowd. And, and I, anything, it doesn't matter if I agree with it, with with them politically or in subject matter ways, that doesn't matter. I love the fact that creative people are like, fuck it, I'll just do it myself. That always makes me excited because it means the industry is really vital, you know? Yeah, it's amazing. You did, you, you I mean, I, I, I saw you as both. I never saw you as one or the other, but you, because I would watch you do material that would kill in any room and wear whatever the fuck you wanted to wear. Clothes weren't important to you. And again, I remember it was a, um, that, 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 uh, there was that thing of like, well, that just wasn't my crowd. And I, I think it was Louis CK said to me, any, make any crowd, your crowd, that's yeah. your job. It doesn't matter who you're in front of. You make any crowd, your crowd. So I always just kind of kept that, uh, in mind, but you know, again, in the mid eighties, comedy was very profitable, but it was dead because it was a very profitable, narrow, um, cookie cutter thing that people just expected to get the same product every time. Now, comedy is a little more precarious, but it's never been more alive. You know, it's very, very hard to make a living as a comedian, but the people that are doing it are so feisty and committed. And, you know, yes, sometimes they're at each other's throats and sometimes there's huge battles, but that's what happens when really creative, opinionated people get together. There weren't any massive battles going on during the comedy boom, because everyone just went, you go in there, you talk about airline food and dogs and cats, and then you make your paycheck, you go home. Now, it's this really amazing, uh, you know, sometimes it's a battlefield, but it's never not fascinating. This podcast is brought to you by Omaha Steaks. I've been a fan of Omaha Steaks since I first went to college, my grandmother sent me a box of Omaha steaks. Every month I get a box of Omaha steaks, fillets. And I, she did that all the way when I lived through New York. And then she started sending them out to LA and then she passed. And so now every time I get Omaha steaks, I think of my grandmother. I'd go buy the Omaha steaks counter when I'm flying through Omaha. And I get excited thinking about my grandmother. These are the fantastic Omaha steaks everyone knows about. Ordered perfectly aged steaks, frozen, conveniently delivered to your door. Money back guaranteed, amazing cuts, steak cut bacon. I mean, this, look, Father's Day is coming up. So give dad the gift he really wants this year. Perfectly aged, tender steaks. Omaha Steaks will deliver the world's best steaks. Omaha Steaks is America's original butcher. Since 1917, you can order with complete confidence today and have peace of mind knowing that you're sending dad 
the very best. Right now, Omaha Steaks is offering my listeners a variety of amazing packages that are perfect to send to dad for Father's Day. Go to omahasteaks.com and enter the code BERT in the search bar. You'll see all the great options available, many that include free shipping and free one-pound package of their perfectly cured, incredibly thick, applewood smoked steak cut bacon. There are many packages available that are perfect for dad. Burgers, Franks, premium poultry. The chicken's amazing, super easy to defrost. I throw it in the fridge. A lot of their stuff you don't even need to defrost. You literally can just cook. We did that with the shrimp the other day. It's amazing. Right now, Father's Day packages are ready. Make Father's Day simpler this year and send dad the gift he really wants. Perfectly aged Omaha steaks and get free shipping and free steak cut bacon with select packages. Visit omahasteaks.com and type Bert into the search bar to shop for Father's Day today. Everywhere is running out of TP, but you know who doesn't need toilet paper? People with Tushy. With Tushy, use 80% less toilet paper. Break up your toilet paper. Treat your Tushy right with Tushy. And treat your butt right. Wiping your butt with dry toilet paper doesn't remove all the shit. If you pooped on any part of your body, your fingers, would you just wipe it off? No, you would wash it with water. Thankfully, there's a sleek new bidet attachment that clips onto your existing toilet and sprays your butt completely clean with fresh water. It is called Tushy, and it is the best thing you can do for your butt. Tushy sprays directly to your ass and removes the poop completely so you aren't sitting on bacteria that leads to things like hemorrhoids, yeast infections, UTIs, itchy assholes, and or skid marks. Bidets are common all over the world. I first saw one in Japan, and they save you money on toilet paper. You still have to use a little bit just to pat dry unless you're a fucking animal. Don't clog your toilets. Tushy sprays your ass with fresh water. It's not toilet water. It connects to the water supply behind your toilet and sprays your dirty parts with clean, fresh water. It is the same water you brush your teeth with. Wet wipes are worse than toilet paper. Don't use wet wipes. They clog up the system. They're bad for the environment. They cause anal fissures. No one wants anal fissures. Right now, Tushy's only $79. Go to hellotushy.com slash birdcast to get 10% off your order. Go to hellotushy.com slash BurtCast to get 10% off your order. That's hellotushy.com slash BurtCast. 10% off your order. Be hands-free, just like me. It's never, and you've, and you've made, you've gone, you've done just about everything. I, I always say my one, my one white whale is I would like to, I feel like I, if I don't make a movie, like make a movie, uh, that's mm-hmm. my one white whale. Um, I'd like to do, I'd like to do multicam just because I think I would really enjoy it. But if I Multicam. never do multicam, that gets fine. But Multicam is so much fun. I bet. It's so <sighs> much. When it's being done well, working with Kevin James, that dude, he to me is like Jackie Gleason and Danny DeVito, those guys who are, it's really hard to be a great TV actor because of all forms of acting, it's the most unnatural way to deliver jokes and then pause and make it seem organic. And those are those guys, Kevin especially, that just made it seem real and and could get laughs with the most subtle stuff even though it looked like he was going big he would do these little he's another one of those guys who's he seems like he's really big and bulky but he's weirdly balanced and agile and has almost this like balletic quality to him it's so it's yeah. kind of it's kind of offsetting we're like oh i didn't know he was so like coordinated it's amazing to see yeah. that and he's just he's amazing at doing that and what a great cast leah remini is a fucking monster yeah is a monster. They don't make they don't make that anymore. No, and I mean, just I mean, she took on the goddamn Church of Scientology. <laughs> Holy shit! It was so awesome. She told me a really funny story 
Um, I was teasing her about when Battlefield Earth came out. That came out while we were working on uh, King of Queens. I was like, wow, you must be real excited for Elrond's uh, movie coming out, huh? And she started laughing. She goes, they had us go to a premiere last night. It was like up in some theater, like way up where you had to like take trams and stuff to go up there where the theater was so that they could then put us back in the trams and take us to the after party and get us all gushing about the movie. And she goes, you know, I, I goes, I've never seen so many people come out of a movie, see the trams that are going to take them to the after party and then get them on camera going, it's the best science fiction ever. They're all running away. And like, she goes, me and all my friends, like, walk down through the mountains of LA to avoid having to be on camera talking about Battlefield Earth. She goes, so all these Scientologists are like trooping through the woods trying to avoid having to give a good review of Battlefield oh. which is just, um, that's such a great visual. Hell yeah. Then And yeah. Jerry Stiller was on that. Jerry Stiller would come into a room. He would get, he would get a laugh on his setup lines. Like, in other words, he was so funny at how he could deliver everything. I remember he came in, there was a scene and the first line is he walks in the kitchen and says, hello, Douglas. And, and again, no joke, they're just setting the scene up, but the way he said it got a yeah. laugh and almost derailed the scene because they had to, it was just, he was such a master. Was that your first big job? Hmm? Was that your first big job? My first, my first paid job was as a video store clerk on Seinfeld in 1994. Um, one line, uh, got my after card, uh, but King of Queens was my first steady. Like, oh my god, I'm a, I'm a cast member of a series. Here I go, and it was it was the best. I had so much fun on that show, and all the writers were like the biggest stoners. We would all go to Vegas for the weekend. We'd rent a bus and all go massive poker tournaments every Friday night after we would wrap shooting. It was just the best. It was so fun. I'm always curious. I know this is a shallow question, mm -hmm. but I feel like one of the things that uh, everyone's always curious about money, but like, what was the first, you don't have to tell me how much money you're making on King of Queens, unless you want to, but, uh, how, what was the first, like, did you, I remember, I remember going over to Kevin James's apartment during King of Queens and he oh. had a Cherokee, a Jeep Cherokee. And I had already bought a, a, uh, expedition, like the brand new Eddie Bauer. And I was living in Cecil B. DeMille's old house. And I thought I may not be spending my money wisely whoa yeah okay um well I'll, all i remember is the first thing i i had i got a staff writing job was my first actual big job on on mad tv for two seasons i actually the I first thing I that I, so the first thing that i did was all the money i made on that i had a manager who gave me an exxon card and to, so that i could buy gas to go to gigs i'd saved every receipt and i did this it felt so good to come in, I took my very first paycheck and all the receipts and I paid off all the gas he had bought me. Oh. Like it, it meant a big deal for me to get to pay off this credit card that he got me. But then when I got the first, the job on King of Queens, I saved up like the first couple of seasons of money. I still lived in a really dinky apartment on Normandy, but I saved up all the money because I wanted to pay my parents back for college. I wanted to pay off the four years they had paid for college and they were so upset by that like they wanted it was their dream to pay for their son's college and not have him pay them back so they were very insulted so then suddenly i found myself with this big wad of money that i then just put right back into savings like again i i started off during that time when it's like there's not a lot of money save everything because it all this is a very 
you know, and, and look at what's happening right now. This is a catastrophic business that we operate in. It's yeah. boom and bust. There's no middle ground. It makes yeah. me, it, it makes me, it makes me feel good to know that you're not a flashy car, flashy. I need to drop money, blow money on. And only because it, it reassures who I, who we, you know, I'm certain it must happen with people who think of what my life is like. But, you know, when you're a fan of someone and I always come at every, like, I'm a fan of comedy. I'm a fan. I may mm-hmm. be a good comedian, but I am legit a fucking fan of comedy. And you Me always, too. I, I watch it. Con- I watch comedy all the time. I love it. I love it. I, there's nothing better than laughing. Yeah. Well, and when there's new specials out, Doug's Tanhope special dropped the same day as mine. I was so excited. He's, got a, great, he's got a great bit about uh, calling India during customer service. That's fucking monstrous. Well, I even like now what people are doing. That thing <laughs> that Tom Segura, that film he shot to promote his tour uh, where he's doing the dancing. Oh, and then- don't, don't, don't dare promote Tom. You know, he did that for me. I fucking started that, right? I know he did. That's what I love. It is such, it was so hilarious to me though, that he's just openly with the most unsubtle, sweaty, <laughs> stealing from Burt Kreischer. And also he's opening it up with these other dancers going, God, he's horrible. You know, you know, he's probably t- like, just <laughs> he's so, Oh God, that made me so happy that oh. like, even the, the way they're promoting things. I was like, I got to work on my promo videos for my tour because I usually just let them like cut together or something for my last special. I'm like, no, that was like, that's a new high bar. I got to do something really good. It, 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 I really feel like we're in a time with comedy where it's meant to be fun again, where we're meant to make each other laugh and just do the videos that do the things that we feel like we have. And, you know, Segura's angle is like, I've made some money. I'll drop fucking 40 grand on a fucking music video. I know. And the fact that, the fact that you're sitting there, he's deep faked you under this morbidly obese body with a bucket that says vodka. It says machine. You just made his fucking day. We oh, literally God. spent we literally just spent 30 minutes talking about you. But then also it was the other thing, too, and it goes back to Kevin James, you look at I me, mean, Tom looks like just this kind of big, bulky guy, and then he starts dancing like, oh, shit, the guy actually has an amazing center of balance, clearly has some core strength, like, what the fuck? It's so, you do not expect him to be busting out those moves. It's, I was stunned. Yeah, I was, that was, I watched that live with him the day it dropped, and it was one of my favorite things I've ever seen. I told him, I go, this is like a love letter to me. Like, this is... This is a love letter. But again, it's a love letter by someone who doesn't understand how insulting he's being. Like in his mind, he's like, and this is my tribute to Brooke Christ. You're like, do you know what a tribute is? Because this is really offensive. And like the levels in that thing made me, oh God. Uh, by the way, you were, when you mentioned, I'm only, I'm, I'm also laughing because when you mentioned you don't drive a flashy car, my car is now 11 years old. The front bumper's coming off. Because my thing is, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to save money. I'm not going to buy a car. And my wife had to sit me down literally with like a legal pad and go that the money you are now spending to repair this car, you could just have a monthly payment on a new car and not spend as much on repair. Like she had to literally walk me through, like I'm a five-year-old, like you need to get a new car. 
This the car you, you're driving was built in the 90s. It's the year, you know, 2020. Let's get you a new car. So it, well, once the pandemic's over, I will get a new car. But like she literally had to like show me because my thing is like, you don't buy anything new. You just keep using it. She's like, no, sweetie. No, no. There's so, there's certain things about you that I that I that I I force onto my image of you. That I hope always like I they, I remember one time hearing you say something. There's nothing better than a bathtub of whiskey and a book. And I went, oh my god, yeah, it's the like, oh god, a, a day like that's one of the few good things about the pandemic are the days I can sit on this little chair on my front porch and just read a book and actually not have to go anywhere and go. Well, I'm just gonna sit. I'm actually gonna read for four hours and god. just read this. Like that's amazing to me. Like you I never I'm, do that. Anymore. I'm not the best reader. I'm like, I just, I have a hard time with reading. I fucking yeah. listen to a lot of books these days. It's so. What do you, hey, books on tape, the actors are getting to do those now are incredible. Have you, um, what have you been listening to on tape? Anything recently or? Uh, a biography on Kim Jong Un. Who, and who's reading it? Uh, it's, it's really racist. It's a white guy doing an Asian accent. <laughs> It's it's Mickey Rooney doing his character from uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's. <laughs> it's, no, I don't know who's probably it's a chick, and she keeps uh, saying Kim, but referring to him, his father, and his grandfather. She just refers to him as Kim, and so it's super fucking confusing. One of the best books on tape. Um, it, it's a book. Tell a me right novel. now. This oh. is a great. This is a great segment of this podcast please give me i'm writing them down patent give me some good books on tape or just good books well here's okay the book itself world war z is just a fun read um because you know but you know remember the movie world war z the yeah. book is written like an oral history like it's 10 years after the zombie outbreak and they're just interviewing different people that survived it so they talk to a scientist a soldier and stuff for the book on tape they cast it so it's like Alan Alda, Mark Hamill, uh, Melissa Leo, Ro uh, uh, Rob Reiner, all talking about their experiences. And some of the stuff, it's so weirdly timely about how like there was a zombie attack on, the, on Congress. All of the government was wiped out. Some guy that was like an undersecretary of education, a local one, like up in Massachusetts, they had to go down the whole line and then he became president. He's like, I was just running a school district and then suddenly I got to be the president. It's like Rob Reiner trying to explain. It's such an amazing listen where you go like, oh, this is what the oral history of, of COVID-19 will sound like later oh, on. Oh, wow. All the insane mistakes they were making. And Mark Hamill plays a special forces soldier who is un trying to explain like, we were using too high caliber ammunition and it would go straight through the zombies and they would keep, we had to learn to use lower caliber stuff so it would hit them and stick inside them and maybe stop them. But the really high power stuff just went through and it just, they would just keep coming. Like it was just amazing how, and you didn't think about that stuff like, oh yeah, wait a minute. If you did shoot too close and too powerful, it wouldn't do anything because it just goes through yeah. them. Got it. So just, I mean, it's just such a fun thing to listen to because it's so well directed and well cast. Do you know who I thought you'd always like? This is once again me putting on to you what I think you'd like. <laughs> James Mishner. Did you ever listen to him, read him? I've, I've, I read his books growing up. He would take like one subject, do a massive, yeah. like just the whole thing. But are the, um, I've never listened to them on tape. Are they good? I, I haven't listened to them on tape. I read those. Those was I stopped reading at a certain age where I was just like, 
you know, I, I actually talked about this today. I heard Seinfeld one t- time say he heard, he saw people at a, at a workplace, they went to lunch and then they came went back and went back to work. And he was like, he was like, I, I started looking at my comedy that way. And then I was like, I don't, I can't shut my brain off. Like I, I don't, I don't get a lot of, so even when, what was happening is when I started stand up and I would try to read as I was reading, I would start writing in my head. And so I would disappear. Well, but that's good that I think, I mean, there was like, when I really got into comedy and it became full time for about, I'd say two decades, I just didn't read that much because all I wanted to do was write comedy. And now that yeah. I have a little more reading room, then I'm getting back into reading again. You should have those years where you just don't. Also, that's another thing too. When people talk about TV shows from the late eighties and early nineties, I have a huge gap because I was always in the clubs. I don't think I've ever seen an episode of, Frasier or Friends or not that those are bad shows, but those were the nights I didn't have a, a DVR. I couldn't, you know, I'm like, I got to be out in the clubs. I was out, yeah. even if I wasn't performing, I was out watching stuff. Never saw so the Sopranos. All the stuff I never watched. Yeah. I never saw the Sopranos. I just, it was when I was working. Cause that's when you were, yeah. Whenever you're first starting, whenever the bug hits you, a lot of pop culture, you just won't be into because you're like, no, I just want to watch stuff. What's your, what's your favorite book you've ever read? <sighs> Like, is there a book you've read, like my wife, twice? <laughs> oh, um, there's a book by uh, James Elroy called The Black Dahlia. I've read three times. Uh, it is one of the most, what a, one of the darkest, most fascinating crime novels. Um, and it's based on a real case, the Elizabeth Short murder, still unsolved in LA. One of the most gruesome murders ever. And he weaves this massive fictional police tale around and and says who he thinks actually killed her um <clears throat> it's incredible one of the you, i i just every couple of years i just pick it up and read it because it's so well done yeah it's insane to me um that true crime has become such a genre of just podcasting of books of that that it was a fascinating your your uh your your i don't know how to say you don't say ex-wife late wife your late wife sorry yeah sorry your late wife, yeah. your late wife. Uh, I, everyone knows this, but I just uh, wrote a book about the the Golden Gate, Golden State, Golden killer. State, Golden State Killer, oh, yeah. and ended up solving it. And kind of, and it was just like a bestseller. Well, yeah. Well, the book, the book itself didn't end up solving it. What the book did is it put light back on the case, and they reopened it. Yeah, that's what. That's what I'm these, Sorry. And also, and this is going to sound kind of this is going to sound a little creepy, but it's true. He had a he did not have a good name. She thought up the name Golden State Killer. Before that, he had like two different names and they tried to combine them because he operated in two different decades. And one of the homicide cops I talked to was like, if you don't brand, if you don't do good branding on a serial killer, a lot of times the case, that's why they become cold because you got to give them a cool name, which is a weird thing to say. Um, and I remember Michelle always felt weird about that. Like, but all these, she knew were like, thank you for giving him a cool name. Now there's interest in the case and it helped to, you know, get the case solved. I just wrote a joke about that the other day. I did a deep dive on your wife randomly because I got obsessed with the Boston Strangler. Mm-hmm. And, and then, uh, and then it, and then I got onto names of killers. So interesting. You say that because I, I said, I, the joke I was trying to write was why, why would they give him a cool name? Like the Boston Strangler. Do you hear that as the guy doing it going? Yeah, that's what I do as opposed to why don't they just call him the Boston pervert? And he's like, that's not what I do. Like, I'm going to stop. If you think you're misconstruing what I make. 
Yeah, that's one of the, if, if you re- go back and read the novel um, Red Dragon by Thomas Harris, which is the novel before Silence of the Lambs, one of the things, and again, it's very dark, but it's, it's true, the, the killer they're looking for, they call him the Tooth Fairy, and he's angry because he wants to be called the Red Dragon. Um, and he's like, they're not understanding what I'm doing. It, it's just, but which, by the way, is a real thing that has happened with Serial killers, where they want to, they want a cooler name. I mean, again, they're horrible human beings, but that, that's a very human thing of like, I don't want that name. I want a cool name, you know. Yeah, so. it's kind of crazy. Um, yeah, that true crime is really. I mean, you look at you look at uh, my favorite murder, and you go, yes. Well, also, do you think that the reason that true crime is so popular now is because we now have these phones, which apparently are supposed to hold every piece of information ever. You can look anything up. So why are there still cold cases? Why are there unsolved things? Shouldn't we know, you know? Um, so I think that that's one of the reasons that people are like, maybe if we talk it out and go over every, have everyone look at this thing. It's like when, when, when you're trying to find your car keys and go, would everyone look around for these? Because you clearly, maybe they're right in front of you and you can't see them and everyone else, you just bring in different eyes. <laughs> I don't know, but it, it seems to be such a compulsion. I mean, the fact that every couple of years, someone publishes a goddamn book with like, I figured out who Jack the Ripper is. You know, like they'll never let that go. Yeah. It's uh you you finished that book. You helped finish that book for her, correct? Yes, I called um, a journalist friend of hers and her researcher, and I said, "Please help me finish this." I mean, we, none of us did any writing. We we organized all. The, I mean, she had pages and pages and pages of the book, and we organized it in a in a form that kind of told the story because her writing was so good. If I had tried to write, I wrote the afterword, but if I had tried to actually then pick up a sentence that she didn't finish, you would have seen the difference like, oh, well, here's where Patton's writing, like, oh, good Lord. So I didn't want to do that. But um, yeah, there was that whole, you know, I'm like, I can't leave this undone. I, I can't go on with my life until this is finished. Was there, this is super personal, you don't have to answer it. Was that, did that help you with the process of grieving? Yeah, I mean, that that was a thing that helped with the process of grieving. But one of the things that you find out um, very, very early about about grief is, a, grief feels like terror. They're the exact same emotion. You're terrified. And nothing, nothing cures it except time. Every single day, it gets a little bit, little bit, little bit, little bit, you know, less. And then suddenly you're, you, you, I had a, a, a dad at my school. His wife died um, from cancer, um, a dad at my daughter's school. And he was like, first, you'll feel like I can't live. Then you'll feel like, oh, I can function, but I'll never feel joy again. And then you'll feel joy again. And it happens and you have to let all of that happen to you. And it's brutal, but that's how it, you, you, you don't go through it. You're put through it. So in a weird way, one of the few positives is you have freedom from choice. You don't have any other choice, but to go through it. Interesting. Did there, were there people, did, did anyone reach out that you were like, why the fuck are you reaching out? Mm, No, I mean, it was all basically, you know, friends trying to, and, and people that maybe I wasn't, the best friends. I mean, you know how, especially in comedy, you have a lot of frenemies. There's a lot of. Yeah. Uh, like that's what I can't like, you know, I mean, I think candidly we, we've had a friend recently lost someone and, and, uh, and I reached out and I felt really weird reaching out. I felt like, I felt like I shouldn't say anything. Just shut up. Like, don't bring it up. You know, and what? He, he said, he said it was very, he said it meant a lot. And I went, 
Well, if I had known that, I would, I'd reach out more to people, but I feel like I don't want to bother anybody. Well, but the thing is, because we're fighting over creativity and art, and that should be, that's a function of our lives. But our actual lives, everything else supersedes that. And if, and if there's a real tragedy there, you know what it reminds me of? Remember that Richard Pryor bit about he has the pet monkey and the pet monkey dies? And there's that dog that chases him all the time, and then, and then he comes out and he's crying, and the dog jumps the fence and is like, are you okay? And he tells him that the monkey's dying. He goes, oh my God, don't hang on to that man. It's like, okay. And then the dog walks away. He's about to jump over and he turns and he goes, you realize I'm going to be chasing your ass tomorrow, you know? And then, and then he like jumps over. So like I have, there's people that I fight with on Twitter that we don't agree politically, but when that happened, they were like, dude, you know, if there's anything I can do, I mean, obviously we're going to fight about bullshit later, but right now, I remember when those massive fires were happening, this is not on the same level, but those huge fires were happening out in, uh, you know, out in uh, uh, Malibu and stuff yeah. recently. And James Woods, who I could not agree about anything with, um, <laughs> he was literally awake, I think, for three days on his Twitter, like, hey, can someone come help? The, like, th- these horses are in trouble. Can someone come to this house? Like, he was, like, trying to marshal stuff. Anyone could do it. And I was like, hey, James Woods, we'll probably be fighting about Trump in a few days. Right now, you're, you're probably saving people's lives. So thank you. Like, it was that thing of, like, oh, yeah, this is real life. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? Like it's just those moments that, that bring shit into perspective. So the fact that you reached out to Mark, I think that's beautiful, you know? Well, yeah, I, I, I you know, it's like, I, I don't know. I always, I think I look at things cynically and I go, I don't want to come out. I, I don't want to be, some, I don't want to, and I don't want anything to look like it's any other motive other than, Hey, I'm thinking about you. And I, and I, and I yeah. think, yeah. Because we're still humans. We're ultimately humans. I mean, again, when you're in your 20s, that's when you have your crazy rivalries. I'll never speak to this person and blah, blah, blah. And then you get to be my age. And you're like, oh, I, uh, come on. We're all the same schmuck, basically. So it's just hard to keep. I mean, again, th- that's why, like, when people get upset by Internet commenters or Internet trolls, my feeling is like, they're supposed to be doing this. They're in their 20s right now. They're young or they're in their 50s and they didn't evolve past their 20s and then they came. <laughs> so just let them work it out. It's just electrons. Like they, you know, they'll either get to this point or they'll die alone. I, you know, but there's, it, either way, it doesn't affect you. Like that's how I've always thought of it. I'm sure you've heard me talk about hymns and how they're helping guys look their best. And if you haven't, it's time to listen to what they're all about. 66% of men start losing their hair by the age of 35. A lot of men notice they're thinning hair and then it's too late. I noticed that it was too, my hair was thinning and I jumped in front of it and I got on medication. Back in the day, you had to go to a doctor. You had to sit with a nurse, then talk to a doctor, and then you had to go to a long pharmacy line. You don't have to do that anymore. The best way to prevent hair loss is to do something about it while you still have it. Don't be one of those guys that turns to gas station solutions or snake oil pills. That's bullshit. You see those all over the place. Don't do it. For hymns is Forhims.com is one-stop shopping for hair loss, skin care, sexual wellness for men. This is a company created by a man who realized that some conversations for men, uh, for example, hair loss or ED, are better to have online than in person. So you don't have to go to a doctor like I did. It connects you, Forhims connects you with real doctors online, which would save you hours. It's completely confidential and discreet. Answer a few quick questions, doctor is going to review. And if they determine it's right for you, they can prescribe you the medication to treat your hair loss that is shipped directly and discreetly to your door. Right now, my listeners can start with their first month for free. Go to 4 slash Burtcast. That's 4  
slash BertCast. Prescription requires an online consultation with a physician who will determine if a prescription is appropriate. Offer valid only if prescribed. Three-month minimum subscription. Additional restrictions apply. See website for full details and important safety information. Remember, that's 4 slash BertCast. Yeah. Hey, we'll pivot from this real quick. Mm-hmm. But and I'll and I'll get you out of here soon. I don't want to keep you too long. I know you're okay. Busy. But um, uh, it's my biggest fear. You get to an hour and everyone's like, "How fucking long is this going to go?" But uh, <laughs> how Nate? I you feel? I feel like you're someone in this business that have, has worn a ton of different hats. Like, and and I'm always curious. This side of me I was always curious of like how many different jobs there are to have in Hollywood. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, you've obviously been an actor and you're obviously a comedian, but like. What other stuff do you get brought on for projects to do? I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of punch up and rewrites on scripts. Um, uh, I now I'm starting to do a lot of hosting award shows, VES awards, Writers Guild awards, three years in a row. Um, I, for some reason, I think it's because I'm such a movie nerd that I get really. I, I'm I'm a host that's excited about the show that I'm doing rather than trying to just do jokes. I actually know who's nominated and I've seen the films and I kind of bring that when I hosted the independent spirit awards, like I was excited that, that, uh, you know, John Waters was in the crowd. Like I was actually giddy about that and that's infectious. So yeah, the, the things I want to, and I'm really starting that this past year, I'm starting to produce a lot of stuff. Um, really? it's just a, it's just a different variation on what I was doing with comedians of comedy, which is you're bringing people that you like, whose work you like that you want to bring together and then make something amazing. And then, and I'm going to try to stop talking about it so much. I want to direct something. I'm going to start directing. I'm going to, there's a couple of comedians whose specials I want to direct um, once comedy comes back and then I want to start making movies. So that's the next thing. That's interesting. Uh, What did, um, do you, did, was there a part of you that felt like this? And this is the most ridiculous statement I'll make, but was there a part of you that felt like, I should get stock options in Zach. I think I fucking helped get people <laughs> to understand him because like he was the most misunderstood dude by industry forever. And mm-hmm. after comedians of comedy, ever, including myself, I was like, that's how you show that man. Yeah. I mean, with me, it, I, cause I was of the feeling of if it wasn't going to be me, it would have been someone else. He would have gotten through yeah. either way. And I bet, I mean, I, I'm not looking to go like, I got to own a piece of this money. I'm more <laughs> like, I get to be friends with him and I get to tour with him. Like that's to me is way more fun than some cold, like financial arrangement with him. And yeah. also, you know, he, um, a- as much as I was showcasing him to the world, touring with him made me a way better comedian, made me think differently about how I wrote. So I, again, I benefited tenfold from that without any kind of weird contract. So, but it's, yeah. but it's still, it was like, it was the, you know, it's like, it's when Zach made the Brody enjoy it. Oh, yes. You go, finally, someone's showing up, the guy we love how we love him. Yes, that would that made me so. And I had like Brody um, do as many shows with me as I possibly could at the Largo, whenever he was available for um, Comedians of Comedy. But weirdly enough, near the end, he became so in demand as an audience warm up guy because he would set the best tone for those rooms and it paid really well. So as much as I was being greedy and wanted to take him on the road and have him open for me. I couldn't justify taking him away from these really good paying gigs where the audiences really loved him. So, I mean, I had him tour with me as much as I could, but you know, he was, he was, he was beloved within the industry. I wish he had gotten some more love outside. 
industry. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I, he was. My daughters knew who he was. So we lived near each other. Really? So, so yeah, so they, they would see him at Starbucks and go, Dad, Brody Stevens. <laughs> I love him. I Just his lines. I, I was an intense kid. I, I charged the mound playing T-ball like that. <laughs> just God, that voice. Yeah. I, I wish he had, I wish he had stayed at the, uh, at the banquet a little longer and gotten a chance to really, you know, get out there and get, <clears throat> he should have had a, a Netflix special Netflix series, something or, or some new format that we don't know exists yet to showcase a mind like his. That he have, would have invented, you know. We I, never I got agree. to see that. It, it just sucks. What um, I th- this is the question I wish everyone had asked me when I was when I was promoting my special. Uh-huh. Um, and you don't and don't 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 go into detail. I just want little hints, okay? <laughs> like, and, and I'll give you examples from mine, okay? So okay, yeah, yeah. What's what's the joke? I'll answer first. What's the joke you're most proud of? And you don't have to say the joke, but in in my thing, mm-hmm. I called it I called it Black Starbucks. That was my joke where I went. This I and I and I'll tell you why it was I felt because it was a layered joke. It wasn't what you thought it was. It wasn't what you think the joke was. It was something else. And I was I loved that joke. What's the joke you're most proud of? Mine and I, and again I get it. There's going to be a bit of a humble brag, but I really was so happy with the Denny's bit that closes the special. It's it's the it's kind of a new level of writing for me. And the special's been out for two days. People are already making animations of it artwork i'm getting sent stuff like it's getting people like it's one of those things that's taking a life outside of it and people are adding to it they're adding to the world that i map out in that and that as a writer and as a as a comedian always feels amazing so the fact that i'm already seeing that two days in i'm you know what i'm not humble bragging i'm openly bragging i'm so happy about that bit i'm so happy that i wrote it it's so much fun loving a bit that you have where you go i loved it i was really proud of myself well, that gets back to that whole thing. I start my special mid-joke. I'm, I'm just telling a joke because all my other specials, you see that the openings get shorter and shorter and because I'm just like, I just want to get to it. And then I re-listen to, there's a 1964 live album. It's Jerry Lee Lewis in Hamburg, Germany. It is a 24-minute live album that he put out. Maybe the best live album ever. No prelude no good evening folks just it opens and he's banging on the piano and here we go and it does not let up and i wanted my special to have that energy just let's go it's almost like the older you get the more you can strip it down i think when you're young you're like i have so much to say what if this is my only special and you front load with all this bullshit now i'm just like let's just go let's go what joke in your special do you feel like is is textbook patent Oh God! Textbook Patton. I'll I'll answer it first. My my jokes about my daughters and my family. I go. That's the Bert that you liked in Secret Time. You get that. You get uh, all that comes. Like I put it. I was very very particular about the way I structured my hour because yeah. I didn't want to put. I wanted to put newer stuff that I was prouder of the way I was writing and wasn't normally talking about up front. And then the stuff that I did that people felt liked me for. In the in secret time, I put in a second thirty minutes. Oh, that's a cool way to structure it. Because I I didn't, I didn't want people to turn it on and go, oh, it's a joke about his daughter. We did, he did this last special. Right. I wanted to go. Oh wait, what is this? <laughs> I wanted to confuse them a little bit and go. I can I you know, and it, I think it worked. I I know I I got the retention rate on my special, so I think it worked. But yeah, but, uh, I, mine was um, 
I mean, the, the thing that's most patent is, is, is the whole thing about breakfast cereals, right? Take this. 50, a, a, it's another food joke, but it's this seemingly disposable computer product that no one thinks about twice. Then I go into, well, what is this actually saying about us? Just like with the famous bull, just like with black Angus, like, is there a bigger human thing that's being said with this frivolous, you know, piece of stuff? So yeah, that was the most patent. What was the names you did not pick for the specials? For the special? I gotta say, I, I came up with I Love Everything pretty early, and I was because that because that's what I called the tour. Yeah. Um so I don't think I had other, I think the only other, um, I was almost going to call it yelling. Uh, but then, cause, but, but then when I looked at it, I'm like, I'm not yelling that much on this one. So I didn't, yelling that much. <laughs> didn't really fit. I'm like, I'm older. I'm not yelling. So eh. what were your other names? I was just looking that up right now. Ooh. Um, I, I know that I had to write them out titles. Here we go. Are you okay. ready? All right. Belly laughs. Oh yeah. Hold on. Go. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna run through them because we've got a fucking list, okay? Whoa, okay, here we go. Belly laughs, third trimester, skinny fat, GD American, pits and pussies, gun show, ripped, yoked, hey big boy. That was there where it came in. Visceral, 225, the skinny special, trimming the fat, hard pass, autistically honest, 12 jokes, four stories, nothing but nips, bad dad, hot dad, hot bad dad, hot dad bod. The Owl Special, Pony Boy, Pony Boy Curtis, Rad Dad, Rad Bod, Bodied, Full Bodied, and Firing Hot. Dude, those are great. The only thing I would the one I would have added would be Father Figure. Fuck! God, <laughs> Father Figure is what I'm calling my next one. <laughs> Father Figure. That's fucking brilliant. Oh, Patton, that is fucking. But um, Autistically Honest works on so many levels. Can we find, I, I want to find a way. Uh, it's not, I mean, it's going to, I would want, I would love to get a way to bridge the gap of nights where like guys like not just do spots, but like go out to dinner with like guys like me, you guys who still like to have a cocktail every now and then yes. and just hang like Segura Stanhope, Rogan, like, like, and, and like Hussein, like, you know, yeah. I feel like there's a way of like, I, I, you're such a well, brilliant dude. But we're also, we're all dads now. And, but that is the thing. I miss the hang. I miss doing an open mic. And then we all go sit somewhere and just hash over what we, and someone will come up with a weird tagline. We are like, Oh fuck. Thank you. You know, there's that moment in the, in the Seinfeld documentary, which working on the think tank joke. And he's like, it's not there. And then he's sitting down with Colin Quinn and George Wallace and George Wallace riffs that one line. And you see Jerry's face go, that's it. That's like, I've got it. Like you see him get the hook right there. And so those moments, I really, I really miss those. Well, dude, I, I only have one more question for you. Okay, what? Um, did you see uh, Dream a Little Dream when you were in college? I did not see that movie because when it came out, I was just starting uh, stand-up. But I did, I did see the scene in the gymnasium where she's in the leotard with the goddamn top hat and Corey Feldman is doing his Michael Jackson dance and she is just like, and so there's moments when like, I'll be around the house. I'm like, oh, I'm married to that girl. I'm married to fucking Lady Diamond. It's dude. It was one of, first of all, I'm a big like time travel out of body type movie guy. Yeah. Yeah. When we were in college freshman year, I must have, I must have watched that a thousand times with Jeff Hartley. Wow. 
I mean, and, and to the point where, uh, I, I said, to, so we were talking, we were talking about like crushes, like childhood crushes and Burr, me and Burr. And he said, who did you have like a childhood crush on? I said, you know, I got to, and I say it only respectfully, but I go, Patton's wife is, was like all of our, in college, that was like all of our dream girls was like, she was so cool. And by the way, this is what, still when both the Corys were cool as fuck. Okay. I like, know. Oh, fuck what anyone says. She was happy. To, she was so excited. She goes, I got a Corey film. Yeah. So. But it's so cool. It's so yeah. fucking cool to know that the girl that we we're all I, obsessed with, that we just ended up marrying a guy like you, like a guy that legit is brilliant, fucking hilarious, fun hang, and just an all around artist and in love with everything that is fucking art it's so cool that she didn't end up marrying some fucking polo player or some shit you know she could have so i don't know i she picked me so i'm and i'm not going to question it i'm going to roll with it and i'm not going to try to keep quiet about it brother congratulations on the special thank you so much man bert thanks i'm so glad i got to do your um your podcast and just like i said to, to Joe Rogan, when all this craziness is over, I want to come in. I like sitting and talking with people. Definitely, without so a doubt. We're all doing as best we can here, but I want to come in and just hang. I can't wait, man. I'm going to play. Where I, I just started watching it, and I put it on pause because Leanne, my wife, heard me playing it. She said, I want to watch that. I want to watch that with you. So we're, <laughs> I'm just outside the cereal bit. I'm going to watch it tonight with Leanne. DM me later because I would love to get your thoughts on the Denny's bit. I think that I one will, just knowing the kind of stuff that you do, I think that one you'll really, really like. I can't wait, man. I can't wait. Thank you so much, man. Thanks, man. Take care, brother. See ya. Bye. This episode was brought to you by The Machine.